Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I am here with No Film School writer, Michelle De La Tour. Hello, everyone. This week on the podcast, we're talking about Mulan, not the dipping sauce, the movie, and Disney's plans for what to do with its release. We're going to be talking about 12-bit RAW from the A7S 3 and why that's really fascinating. All of that and a return of the Ask No Film School with a really interesting YouTube licensing rights question. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, our first top story this week. Disney, owner of many theme parks, owner of many properties, creator of the Mulan dipping sauce, also has a movie called Mulan that was supposed to come out this year in theaters. If you haven't heard, there's this thing called the pandemic and it's keeping us out of theaters and Disney's decided to release it, not to Disney plus initially, but they're going to release it for pay VOD, which is bold because if you guys remember we talked a lot two or three weeks ago about hamilton where disney released hamilton just to disney plus and disney paid a pretty penny for hamilton that and we're expecting a large theatrical return on that when it came to theaters and instead of waiting for theaters they put it on disney plus and it was a huge bump for disney plus so it's interesting to me that only a few weeks later they're like all right we have this other massive property And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that while there is some overlap between Mulan fans and Hamilton fans, it's not a perfect (laughs) Venn diagram there. Like it's not a perfect circle. There are some other people that they could potentially be trying to get into Disney plus with Mulan. So it's interesting that instead of dropping it for free in Disney plus they're going VOD. I have a theory personally, and that theory has got a one word title and that is kids. I think that this one was probably a very interesting and and complex decision in the sense that this felt like a film that was geared towards a theatrical release in the spectacle piece in the terms of the cinematography and the sound design and everything that was that was put into it felt like a you very saw it, I've seen it yes we've mentioned uh, it before but yeah. for those who don't know who now I know listening. an end timeline for my uh, unofficial embargo to break you know there, it felt like there was really an investment in the cinematic spectacle of which, you know, Tenet's going to be like this too in terms of knowing that it would land on a large screen, that you're going to see it in a properly mixed and, and your sound and all that stuff. And so to put it on VOD, I imagine, was quite the conversation. To then put it on VOD and charge more for it than just going to be a member of Disney+, Plus. though I don't know how that works. Just, we said it's like $30 to do VOD. I don't know if that's included. Like, if you're already paying for Disney Plus, are you just paying an additional $30 to see it on VOD? I feel like was a bold move. People might do it, although we've been waiting for so long now that I, I don't, I feel like they're going to have to drum up marketing support again because it's been so long since we've seen a trailer or a interview <laughs> with someone of the cast to drum up support for it in the fall. I think this is, yeah, I think this is. A big deal because we have been sort of wondering what's going to happen to the theatrical release model. And we've talked about streaming and we've talked about how things are changing for filmmakers and for major movies and tent poles and big studios. And Disney doing this signals to me, especially because this happened on their quarter three earnings call. Mm-hmm. This is a signal to me that they were like, okay. 
We spent a lot of money on Mulan. They did spend a pretty penny on Hamilton, but they spent an even prettier penny on Mulan. Yeah, and I think they were like, we got to make some money back. We can't just sit on it forever. We can't pull a tenant, Chris Nolan style and wait and or just do the international thing. Their, their plan here is to try and see if PVOD works and if it recoups and how that goes. And I think as like with so many things during this time, we'll see. But it's interesting that they're taking the first stab at that. Like, okay, we're not going to hold out forever and wait until we can get it in theaters. Because they probably know like the theater model is meh. Like, you know, maybe it's maybe the way to figure out how to keep making these movies and making this kind of money. Plus, here's the other kind of interesting tidbit that came out of this earnings call with Disney, which it's not necessarily something we'd report on or talk about a lot, but certainly this is interesting to filmmakers. Disney Plus has reached... 60.5 million subscribers. I heard from people at Disney. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a big number. (laughs) I've heard from people at Disney that that was a number they were thinking for 2024, not a number they were thinking for now. The pandemic may have accelerated growth, but what's crazy, the craziest thing about that number is that they barely have any original content, right? They're really getting by on the library and the occasional like, or the promise or the like, you know, and, and that to me is just like, if we're trying to suss out where our industry is going, sometimes looking at the biggest fish and which direction they're moving will, will mean nothing for the rest of us, but sometimes it'll tell us things and, you know, create little eddies or stream or whatever, uh, things that will impact us. And I just think that this is a, uh, a big one to notice that even the we talk, remember last time guys we were talking about how um the Palm Springs release was so big mm-hmm. maybe because of now on our last week's episode i feel like this is an example that like everybody is kind of coming to that table like you know what this vod thing is the is it this is it now and we're going to find ways to make this the thing i i mean i think we can all agree that that number is largely driven by parents or children and i wonder if and I'm about to go out on a huge limb here and say, I think peak amorality for most people is 21. I think you're like, you're like basically as a teenager, completely amoral. <laughs> and then that has to do with your developing you like, parental I'm really curious where we're going yeah. now. I'm really fascinated. As you age, your prefrontal you sort of cortex inc- gets developed yeah. and like, yeah, totally. And you, you, you develop more morality. And I think that like, you know, if you're Disney Plus, your subscribers probably skew a little older, thus more likely to actually pay outright for Disney Plus, less likely to share a subscription with four of their friends. Now, mm. don't get me wrong. I know mm-hmm. plenty of amoral boomers. I know plenty of retirees who share their Netflix password. Like, I'm not saying that this is any kind of overall trend. I'm definitely not attacking the millennials because um, I, I, I'm not going to get canceled by the millennials. I'm just or saying Gen that Z. I want or Gen, Gen Z. Z. Yeah. But I also think it's interesting to think about the fact that like, especially since this is something many people like share with their kids and like are flipping through with their kids, you know, we've all been to that person's house where they fire up Netflix and there's like nine names at the front of it. And it's like, none of these people are your roommates. What are you doing? And I think people <laughs> probably don't want to do that in front of their kid. Like nobody wants to have their kid be like, 
who's Tony? And it's like, oh, Tony's the person from down the street we share our Disney Plus login with. So I wonder if they have higher numbers because people are morally incentivized to actually pay for the subscription because their kids are watching and they want to present a moral face to their children. That's one theory I have for the speed of those numbers. Um, Interesting. But I also wonder if that's the reason why they're going to pay for Mulan is if you're Disney Plus, you have the data and you can look at the data and say, we already have all the parents of kids. So it, throwing Mulan on there for free gives us nothing. No one is going to subscribe right. for the first time for Mulan. We've got you. We're going to get a whole lot of people. We don't have the Hamilton people. We don't have the musical theater nerds. Um, and <laughs> Numerous you know, as they may be. There are many. There are many, 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 many. Hamilton. What about the history yeah. buffs? And the history buffs, they weren't, they can look at their data and say, we already haven't hit these two. So we're going to give Hamilton for free, but it's going to make these people subscribe. Whereas if you just gave the parents Milan, the parents are already paying for Disney plus, but parents of kids also have a tremendous amount of peer pressure. So if you know that you're, you know, you're son who's obsessed with disney all of his friends have already seen mulan you're not going to wait make him wait three weeks and miss out on all of those fun zoom conversations with his friends you have to get it as soon as it comes out gosh and i think they're just being really strategic in this i think it is like frankly the smartest possible play if i had a child of the appropriate age my child is too young for mulan we're sticking with daniel tiger when we do allow tv time but i'm aware when my child is seven I will not want her to be two weeks behind everybody else with Mulan. If you have kids right now, you're just like desperate for anything to hand them. That's anything new. new. So I don't think that there will be delay just because it'll be like, oh, thank God there's a new thing. Here, put it on fast. And they're like, willing think, to pay for it. Yeah, and totally. To pay for um, it. I think all of that is true. Um, I think that Disney makes a lot of big, careful calculations. So the things they're doing are probably sound and also their parks are hemorrhaging. So even if they're reporting earnings up, they're like, they're really hurting on some end. So this is just a massive company and, you know, they have a lot going on. But I think that when it comes to sort of setting the tone for how these platforms are going to function and succeed and how they're going to impact the release of movies, this is a good indicator of what could be coming. I would be interested to see, or I will be interested in seeing how this film gets marketed between now and September, because there's two ways. There's the kid way, so to speak. There's like posting, or there's there's a focus on attracting, potentially making marketing materials that are attractive in that way. But the film also, because it's, a, a remake, a live action remake of an animated classic that may or may not be in Disney Plus already. So there's an interesting, I don't it know is. if they're going to. I'm gonna, sure it is. I'm sure it is. So I don't know if they're going to like put it in the vault, you know, when the new one comes out or what they do in terms of that. But it, there are many, 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 this is not a spoiler, there are obviously many callbacks to the original, not in all the ways, but in many subtle ways to the or animated one. And so there is a, a attempt to, or there could be an attempt in terms of the marketing to say like, did you like this when you were young? Because now we've made an updated version, so to speak with some of the callbacks to the original. So they have kind of a tandem approach here of the whole family marketing sphere of not just to the kids, but, Oh, you saw this too when you were younger and we've updated the story a little bit. Here you go. And that's been, uh, that's very clear in the film. It's clear in their trailers and stuff headed, um, headed out. So we'll see. We'll see. September feels so long. And then I realized it's next month. 
Yeah. Well, it's still kind of March, right? I thought it was, I, I honestly thought it was six months from now. Like, I just, I, when you said, when we said September, I was like, oh man, that's so many months. Not, <laughs> it's really not. But you work in education. So September must be barreling at, like, for me, I feel like September is in seconds because, you know, it's like, it's like, it's coming. It's coming. What is it going to be? What are we going to do? How much is it going to be open? Like, yeah, all of that. So I just feel like it's like barreling at me. And I'm like, ooh, maybe I'll enjoy a nice evening of Mulan at some point. Oh, that's to a good point. distract from the stress. <laughs> that's a good point. Moving on to tech news. Dry, uncontroversial, calm, serene tech news. Uh, last week, we covered the A7S III from Sony, a very exciting new camera that um, really kind has won the internet. you know, like... A little bit controversial, except we had a whole post on No Film School that was just all the memes about how everyone on the internet loves it. Like, all of the memes are like the, the A7S III is one. And frankly... On specs, it's really killing it, except for the 4K. But everybody seems fine with 4K, which, hooray, everyone has a reasonable take on that. I support you, Internet, in that one. One of the things we mentioned last week was that RAW was already going to be supported right out of the gate from Atomos. But then further details came out, and I just wanted to share with everybody that it is going to be natively 12-bit RAW. That was the news that came out this week. And I wanted to talk a little bit about bit depth, because I feel like that's something that um, various people don't always understand and why I think it's really a nice feature that from the gate you're going to be able to do 12-bit raw out of this camera and so what is bit depth so bit depth is the number of steps between total black and total white and so a very low bit depth camera like if it was like two bits you'd have black and white so every pixel in your frame would either be totally black or totally white it'd be very contrasty the more bits you get the more steps you have in that scale um so you know 8-bit is actually 256 steps in the scale. 8-bit uh, video was very common in the early internet. You saw a lot of 8-bit everywhere. 5D Mark II was 8-bit. And 256 steps, it's a lot of steps, but you actually sometimes see things like banding and artifacts. 10-bit has always been the broadcast standard. That's 1,000 steps. It's 10 to the 10, 1,000 steps. And uh, so it's been a very common format for a long time. And you see a lot of 12, 10-bit formats. But 10-bit is actually um, a little bit limited. We've started to see 12-bit and even 16-bit RAW formats in higher-end cameras for a while. I mean, the, the original Red 1 was 12-bit RAW. And then, you know, 12 years ago, and then Red Epic or Red Helium, one of the Reds went 16-bit RAW. And the more bits, the more steps you're going to have from zero from total black to total white, which is going to give you smoother gradations. So if you're frustrated by your camera, if you're like, you know, I shoot this camera and I shoot this other camera and the skin tones look better in one camera or another, it's not always color science you're noticing. Everyone always gets so obsessed with color science, but sometimes it's bit depth because if you've got something that has really fine detail like human skin, one of the things you'll often notice is a lower bit depth camera will make that skin look a little clumpier. It won't see all those fine gradations and details. So higher bit depth is something that, you know, is we're often really looking for in the pipeline if we can do it. And so the fact that from the gate, you know, within a couple of weeks of the A7S III shipping, you're going to be able to get 12-bit RAW. So you're getting the benefits of RAW, which is unprocessed sensor data, and you're getting 12 bits of that. 
So you're getting a really wide latitude with very fine gradations in that latitude straight into the cam, straight into the recorder, I think is actually sort of a nice killer combo for that camera. I have to admit, I've always been sort of anti Sony, but I'm even kind of a little excited about the a7S III. And I'm particularly excited about how quickly these features are rolling out. How much does the, do we think this Atomos, the Ninja 5 will cost? The Ninja 5 is under a grand and it's only five inches and it's for, for a very, for all the functionality it adds, it is a very affordable, flexible unit. So you're um, really talking about for not that much more money in addition, because I'm always curious when we talk about the, the cameras, I know anyone who's like a real camera and gearhead will understand all of these things. But for those of you who aren't, a lot of times when we're talking about the cameras, we're really, well, we're just talking about the camera body, right? We're not talking about the a recorder necessarily or lenses or any of that stuff that ends up making the camera capable of doing a lot of the things we talk about their, what they're capable of doing. Uh, so I find it interesting sometimes to say like, well, what is the cost really going to be if you want to get all of that? And I guess my last question about it, because you talked about color science and skin tones particularly, is, you know, we talk a lot about how the Alexa does a great job with color science and reproducing, reproducing skin tones. How many, how, how deep is it? How, how, how many bits does it record? So uh, I don't actually remember Airy Raw's bit depth, but ProRes XQ, so plain old ProRes is 10-bit and ProRes XQ is 12-bit. And one of the key features when they came out with ProRes XQ was uh, the Alexa can shoot to ProRes XQ and that gives you 12-bit recording in the Alexa. I can't remember if Airy Raw is 12-bit or 16-bit. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Airy Raw is probably 16-bit because those files are massive. And so I'm going to assume Airy Raw is 16-bit. But I'll, I'll say this. Of everything I've ever done on the Alexa, I've only done an Airy Raw job once. The Alexa is still, for many independents, a ProRes camera, and ProRes XQ really opened up 12-bit um, so because the hard drive then, storage spaces are just such so, a big deal. Right. So then in theory, this being able to go 12-bit Apple ProRes RAW on this A7S three is a really big deal because it could create that level of color reproduction. Yeah. The other thing to remember about things like the Atomos, I'm going to be the first guy to admit that I sort of slept on external mono quarters when they first started hitting the streets. I was like, I don't, I don't get it. Like I just didn't get it. And then I got a Shogun and I've been using it with my X-T2 and then I sold my X-T2 and I got an X-H1. And now, you know, when the X-H2 comes out, I'm going to sell my X-H1 and keep using the same Shogun Inferno. So, like, the perk of those monocorders is if you get the right one, yeah. it works with a variety of... So, like, I don't even necessarily think of the price being, you know, like, it's the camera and the monocorder. But that monocorder, you might have bought it for the A7S 2 and you're still using it with the A7S 3 And in three years, you might still use it with the A7S 4 So, there's, there's legs and a variety. And, like, for instance, my Shogun Inferno in the last four years... I've used it with EVA one. I think I've used it with FS seven. I've used it, you know, it, it like goes out on a variety of jobs with me to do a variety of things. So it's like, there's flexibility in that. So I don't think of it as like, it's I think not of a it more as a tripod. Per se. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, so I, I just double checked and it is only 10 bit internal. All of the internal formats max out at 10 bit. So the fact that 
And what's really interesting is, you know, most HDMI connections are 10-bit. HDMI has been 12-bit capable for a while, but you don't see a lot of 12-bit HDMI support. So this means Sony deliberately built in support inside the camera because Atomos is famous for talk to them at any trade show. And they're like, if the camera manufacturer will put it out, we'll figure out a way to record it. Nobody's ever waiting on us. We're always ready. We're always waiting on the camera manufacturers. So this means from the beginning, Sony was planning on making sure that the signal path enabled 12 bit going out over the HDMI. And I know a lot of people have been frustrated with a variety of cameras over the years where they're like, I have this camera and it does X, but the HDMI is only 1080. And that's, you know, the signal path and the board and everything, everything about this camera was clearly designed with filmmaking features in mind. And the fact that it's putting out 12 bit raw over the HDMI is a big deal. So it, uh, it's a good sign from Sony. Yeah, it sounds like it's a significant boost to get to do it. All right. All that. Now we are on to Ask No Film School. We have a question this week from Peter Levine. I want to use a portion of a video CBS has posted on YouTube. In addition to the licensing fee, they want me to pay a master fee. But I don't need them to provide physical media because I can just download the clip they posted on YouTube. I only want permission for the clip. Do I have to pay the $200 master fee? This doesn't seem fair. Um, So, Peter, first off, the whole world of licensing is annoying and complicated and often doesn't feel fair. In this particular case, there are two reasons why I think this is fair. The first reason is that the copy on YouTube, I guarantee you, is lower quality than what they can send you. Even if they're sending it to you digitally, oftentimes when you're working with archival media houses, um, they're, you know, everything up on YouTube is encoded to H.264 or H.265. There's going to be bit depth and dan- banding issues related to that. And usually when you license a film, they're going to be able to send you a ProRes or a DNX220 file, often DNX220 because a lot of docs are avid. Um, Oftentimes they'll have a website where you can get either. And depending upon the final export of your movie, you're going to want that higher quality. If you have to go through any kind of license, uh, like a broadcast QC, if you're delivering to NetGeo or Fox, you know, there's going to be artifacts that show up in clips you downloaded from YouTube that can cause you some issues in QC. Even if it's going back to YouTube, downloading from YouTube, putting it in your timeline, re-encoding it back up to YouTube can cause, you know, sort of data moshing compound artifacts. So that's one issue is you do want the nicer quality copy if you can get it. The other issue is that master fee isn't just about giving you the file. It's also all the associated fees with, you know, I, I always think about it this way. The licensing fee goes to the original creator of the content usually, right? So if it's CBS, CBS still owns it and it's going into that department. I think of the master fee as the fee that's going to the archive that keeps it. So somewhere in CBS, there's a department that has to archive all of this stuff and they have to have a budget. And a lot of times that might be external. It might be a third party service. It might be something like that. And, you know, archiving things are expensive. YouTube is not a great archive because 10 years later, the quality might be terrible or, you know, Google had a fire in their Dutch server factory once and lost a bunch of emails. And, you know, these are things you worry about as an archive. So the master fee is paying for CBS or whoever is the archive to physically house the media on whatever format they're putting it on, be it LTO or tape, or sometimes it's on film. So I think, you know, a $200 fee is annoying for the master. 
but I, I tend to think of it being worth it because that's the way I picture it. I picture the licensing fee going to the big corporation who created the media and the master fee or whatever it's called going to the archive that's, that's maintaining it. I kind of got a flash memory of going to the CBS News archives to get beta tapes as you were saying this. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know where some of these things are kept uh, for them. I would be careful. I would advise this person also to be careful. We're not downloading things from YouTube, right? But really, people are they're jailbreaking or they're screen recording, right? It's not that we're just going to go. So the I would be very careful by telling people, oh, I can just get the media because what you're saying is I will actively use the tools at my disposal to get it out <laughs> of the YouTube video, right? So please be careful saying that to folks because you're definitely not going to get approval if you're like, I'm just going to go get it myself. And then now you've given them a reason to keep an eye out and you don't want to do that. Um, you want to you know, be careful. There is, I would be very curious to know what this is for. And it was something where you wanted to pull for fair use. That's another conversation. But now that they, you know, you've started these conversations and you want to make sure you make it clear because the alternative is worse. Like the alternative of like, I'm just going to get it. They told me I can't, I have to pay this fee. I don't want to. I'm going to download it and put it in my project anyway. Like that is not the position you want to find yourself in. That is like, it's just not a good track record, you know, like thing to have. But so I'd be curious what it's for. This isn't necessarily a fair use conversation yet, but um, particularly if, I don't know if it's for an educational piece or or a documentary of some kind for which those are um, those conversations often come up. First, I'll tie it into we do have a lot of things on No Film School about free stock footage. So if you're looking for something specific, but you want to be able to access uh, a version of it or something similar for free, you don't have to pay CBS for. We've written about those things. You can search for stock footage on our site. You can search on Google and probably find some stuff too. There's also stock footage libraries you can pay for, which we've written about and exist all over the place. Uh, if it's really just this specific thing though, I'm going to tie this back to something we talked about earlier when it came to Disney+. Plus. I am of the opinion that it's just a better idea if you can pay for it and you're being asked to pay for it, to pay for it. Um the the thing of like sharing, I don't want to go down, get too onto the tangent of this, but like the thing about sharing the Netflix accounts or the Disney Plus accounts just always strikes me as like extra work to do something you're not supposed to do. Um, so similarly, it's like, sure, you can like rip stuff off YouTube and put it in a video, et cetera. And like until someone flags you, tells you to take it down. But if you've already done the investigating, like Michelle said, and they're asking you to pay a fee, you should just pay the fee. And or find a free alternative. Um, to me, that is the right way to go. And it's it's better to go that route. Um, what do they say? It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. But um, but in this case, you already asked permission. So now you can't ask for forgiveness. Does that make sense? Like if you just go ahead and use something that you're not supposed to, and then someone's like, Hey, you can't use that. You're like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. I'll pull it. I'll, I'll swap it out, whatever. But we're already past that where you've investigated the cost and contacted them. So you, you have to do it, but, um, there's alternatives if you don't want to, there's always free alternatives. We're also not promoting that you go do that, by the way. Like, don't go downloading clips and just throw them in a project. No, <laughs> like, it's always a mistake because, like, things like that. Like, I've had the indie, I've produced indie films and indie projects enough in my life that they're always like your your best case scenario 
outcome for a project ends up in a position where someone asks you like, okay, is everything in here cleared? Or like, you don't, do you have errors in emissions insurance or because of those things? Yeah. It's probably best to, to pay and not to steal. I will say that there's one exception to all this, which is I've worked in the finishing of several like professionally produced, distributed on a network docs that uh, did download clips from YouTube for the editorial process. They had dedicated archival producers that were constantly checking what clips were being downloaded and were using and were tracking down archives and negotiating for rights and all that. But like, it is actually not uncommon in docs as part of the editorial process to just go ahead and if you find a copy of it, use keep fit or whatever and get it in your edit so that your edit can keep working. But it is important if you do that to track it all to know I got this from here. I need to do research on who owns it. Usually it works best if you're working with a dedicated archival producer. If you're on a small doc, that's going to be the editor, unfortunately, or the producer. But that is actually a workflow that like professional docs will still do. And I think archives do sort of understand that like you have likely, if you're at the point where you're negotiating the price, you've likely used something like KeepFid to cut it into your timeline already to make sure it even makes sense in the edit. Because you're not going to pay for anything until you've cut, cut with it, hopefully watermarked. And you're like, oh, I actually do need this piece of footage. This is the footage I want. Then you go negotiate paying for it. And in fact, a lot of stock footage sites are even trying to make it easier to sort of have that workflow of replacing it with the paid version when you're done. But like that is the legitimate thing. But yeah, I mean, if there's an option and you can't afford it and it works, I think it makes sense to um, pay for the media you consume because uh, it is how this whole industry turns on. Yes. Let's plug our pluggables. I'll go first this week. I'm Charles Hain, H-A-I-N-E. I'm on the Instagram and the Twitter at Charles Hain. I've been tweeting a lot lately. I need to Instagram some more. And uh, you can check out my web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Ficto. And it's on Vimeo VOD. This is Michelle De La Tour. In contrast to you, Charles, I think I've been Instagramming a lot and I need to tweet more. You can find me at both at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thanks for joining us this week. And we'll talk to you guys soon. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Uh, That was a great question, and I hope we gave you a good answer. Please remember to always ask us questions. Email us at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. Leave a comment, like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Head over to nofilmschool.com itself and read about uh, Mulan, because we have the story up already. Um, We also have... A really interesting story about how some PCP ended up in the chowder on the Titanic set. You you want to know more about that, right? If you haven't heard that story already, it's a good one. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. And we'll hopefully hear from you soon.